0: what on earth is climbing mayhem i'm glad you asked one day, Wolf Jones and I were talking about some of the biggest, hairiest problems on earth, and we started obsessing about the question, can sustainability and capitalism coexist? Look, because isn't what we've been doing the past 40 years not really working?
1: No, it's not. And this blame the big business route where we've made for-profit companies and corporations, the enemies, the martyrs of this climate mess we're in, isn't working. Well, don't get us wrong. It might be true. It just hasn't stopped us from emitting tons more carbon, creating tons more plastic waste and degrading our landscapes even more every day.
0: So don't we need to do something different. Isn't there a huge window of opportunity here?
1: Yes, we need change, which means we need innovators, big thinkers, people out there willing to take the risks.
0: Yes, we need people willing to tackle the hardest, most nebulous problem right now, climate change, and we need to align incentives to do so. They need to be able to make money off of these earth-defining solutions. So, coupling our love for startups and planet Earth, we had to talk to these people.
1: And Climate Mayhem was born. So listen along while we speak with entrepreneurs and operators in different verticals of climate tech who are striving to make a difference. Oh, and make some money while doing it.
0: And from some pretty incredible companies like Impossible Foods, EVgo, Drone Seed, Carbon Collective, Floodbase, and even Mission Driven Venture Capitalists.
1: And are you an entrepreneur or someone about to get into this space? Guarantee you'll definitely learn something from these impressive visionaries and learn just how possible it is to take on this seemingly impossible.
0: Mayhem on did you ever think being more comfortable could be saving the planet well it's possible yes i'm not kidding andy frank is founder and president of sealed a tech company that finances home weatherization insulation and heat pumps using the dollars homeowners save by using their service ty what do we talk about in this
1: episode well we cover a lot of ground like Who the hell is Amory Lovins, possibly one of the most fascinating humans alive? How does Sealed make a super old, like 125-year-old home more efficient? And what do we mean by greedy AF versus lazy AF philosophy? So join us while we're chatting with Andy Frank, but he's telling us about how Sealed is rewriting the playbook on climate change. They are literally helping you
0: help the planet all from never leaving your house. But Ty, Sealed is leaving the house. They're actually already in seven states, expanding fast to the rest of the U.S. Go to Sealed.com, plug in your zip code, see if they're in your area. Maybe you can take advantage of them. But not yet.
1: Listen to the episode first, because there might just be a discount code in there for you. What? If you're intrigued, keep listening, and you'll find out more.
0: Enjoy, and mayhem on. Mayhem on, Ty. Andy. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking about some mayhem. Let's let's uh, rock us on. I do want to call out really quick. It looks like you have a is that a mini split behind you, or is that part of the the heat pump? And and you're we're recording this right now.
2: Yeah, it's a mini split that is part of my heat pump system. So I uh, got my. Owned sealed uh, weatherization and electrification project last year, and as part of that, I replaced a boiler from the 1960s. Um, that's uh, pretty old and funky with a brand new, amazing, super efficient heat pump system uh, that has two compressors, uh, eight mini splits, one of which you see me, and keeps me wow. warm in the winter and cool in the summer.
0: Nice. And it's eight mini splits for eight different rooms.
2: Yep. So I have two compressors, and then each mini, each compressor has four mini splits uh, on it. So I've got four upstairs, three downstairs, and one in the basement.
0: Okay. A oh, one in the basement, too. That's super nice. Do you have an older home?
2: Yeah. It was built in depends how you define older, but in the mid 1960s. Um, okay. So okay. The boiler I removed was the one that they put in when it was there. And there was little, in, yeah. very little insulation. So it was, it was pretty, it's pretty cold in the first, the first winter and pretty hot in the first, uh, in the first summer.
0: Gotcha. Okay, good. We'll talk Sounds more bad. more about homes later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds like the, the room I'm in now. Yeah. So, so Andy, I thought we'd kick off the conversation with, you mentioned him as the goat, hoping to learn about Amory Lovins, who is Amory Lovins. And maybe you could go into why he's an inspiration for you.
2: Yeah, so Amory, as you mentioned, is is the GOAT, or what I'd call the, you know, also known as the greatest of all time, uh, I would say, and definitely in the energy efficiency space. He okay. was advising, you know, the Jimmy Carter administration uh, when he was really wow. young in the 1970s. Um, it was the first time that energy efficiency had really been talked about or thought of as a mm. as an energy resource. Um He founded the Rocky Mountain Institute, which is one of the the leading think tanks in the, in the clean energy space. Um, And has really done a lot of great, great research and a lot of great work. And over the years, and he's just, and he's a prolific writer and thinker um, and has just really pushed the envelope on, uh, on how people think about energy resource productivity and really thinking differently. Um, And, you know, one of the things that really got me into the climate space when I was when I was young in high school was reading one of his books um, along with his uh, wife at the time, um, uh, Hunter Lovins, and Paul Hawken, who's also a big legend of kind of the clean clean economy. And it was all about how we can you know kind of have it all, right? We can have a great economy, we can we can grow grow our society um, while Maintaining our planetary uh, resources. And it's kind of intuitive, right? Like the the fewer yeah. input resources you need for something, right? The lower cost, uh, the better productivity. So, you know, this idea that we need to pollute the planet in order to have a great economic system just, just really isn't true. And he was one of the first ones that really kind of pointed to that out in a, in a big way.
0: He has to be one of the most fascinating people I've learned about recently in the climate space. I guess some, some things I learned is that nicknamed the Einstein of Energy Efficiency. And he has this incredible home, like a chalet, a glass mountainside and home. Snow and, mass. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. And uh in the, the Guardian article that I had had read it was that there was some sort of snowstorm going on and he didn't even have to turn on the heat. Can you ex- <laughs> can you explain why he potentially didn't have to turn on the heat?
2: Yeah. So he in that home he has what's called a passive house. So it's this Basically, approach to building homes that means you need almost no heating or cooling, and sometimes wow. literally no heating or cooling. When you think about building an igloo, for example, right? If you have some, if you have a a building that's super well insulated and super airtight, right? And you don't have elements from the outside going going in, at sealed. We kind of call that keeping the outside out, right? So if you build a home from yeah. the ground up that is engineered to keep the outside out, you really don't have to use you know any energy for free, mm-hmm. for heating and cooling right
0: yeah he talked about this whole system design and how he was encouraging implementing that not only in residential but also in schools and buildings and office buildings and like and it really got me thinking about homes and the way that they all look they almost all homes in some way look like mobile homes or those <laughs> homes that they just kind of like, you can buy it as a piece i can't remember the name right now but i'm like Why are we just living in these big blocks? Like he definitely figured out a super efficient way to build a home and then to to really optimize living in it, huh?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, if if only uh, everyone had you know listened to him from the from the 1970s in terms of all the homes that were built since then, we we definitely have made a big big dent in our uh, in our decarbonization uh, efforts. Um, And it's really a mentality shift, right? This isn't anything that's rocket science or some sort of high flute material science, right? It's just Thinking differently about what you're putting in, the trade-offs that you're making. Um, and it's really kind of a design philosophy that goes again beyond homes. You can think of like um, an electric vehicle, for example. When, when, when you stop and think about it, it's actually kind of crazy that we try to like have an internal combustion engine in our cars, right? It's actually super complicated to do that. There's right. all sorts of weird stuff. I'm not a I'm not a car guy, I'm not, I'm not that smart, but you know, it's, it's really complicated. And an electric vehicle is actually much simpler, right? But it requires a very different design mentality. And it's it's, oh, right. no, different with our, it's no different with our homes.
1: And not a bunch of mini explosions happening yeah. in this metal chassis. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a really good yeah. point.
0: He also created the concept of the all-electric carbon fiber car. It was called the hypercar. Back mm-hmm. in ninety one. Uh, I actually went and I read that article at newscientist.com. <laughs> this is the oldest article. It was like 1993. And looking at this image that he had created, it was like, basically, it, it just has like a storage batteries, has tires with low rolling resistance, wheels are powered by electric motors, so it's a super light car, you could go really far. Yeah, he he. you're right, it could be applied in so many different ways, huh?
2: Yeah, yeah, that was probably the one thing he probably got the most wrong, though, because he assumed oh. that that would be powered by hydrogen, which is not super practical, because to yeah develop hydrogen in any sort of sustainable way you have to it's a it's a conversion right you have there isn't a lot of naturally occurring hydrogen so you have to use one energy resource to create hydrogen and that's a big energy loss that you're you're getting mm-hmm. and so that's a big big barrier to uh to scaling hydrogen uh, cars
0: very interesting andy what inspired you to work in sustainability
2: so I'm, I think I'm sick. Probably you guys are as well in wanting to, uh, always wanting to confront uh, problems that are both very impactful um, or very important, I should say, yeah. but also very challenging. And so, you know, when I was going to college and and kind of thinking about what the impact I wanted to have on the world, it, it kind of hit me from you know reading books like Natural Capitalism that that climate change really was going to be the biggest um, opportunity for change um, and the biggest need for change, frankly, you know, of my lifetime and of my generation. And so I really kind of dove in and and wanted to understand kind of all aspects of the the problem. So in undergrad, I studied environmental science and public policy, which was a a cross disciplinary major, which is a lot of fun. Had to take biology, chemistry, organic chemistry, which I definitely almost failed, economics, political science, kind of really seeing this this problem from a lot of different views. And and you have to look at something like climate change from all of those different um, perspectives. And then the thing that I think really got me focused more on efficiency specifically was um, a seminar I took that really focused on all the different ways that you can mitigate climate change. Um, so we learned about, you know, from the kind of world's leading experts, uh, solar and wind mm-hmm. and nuclear power and carbon capture and sequestration and you know geoengineering. You know, all things you still kind of mm-hmm. kind of hear in the news and and that we're we're talking about and then we had to create essentially like a model for for how we thought the mix of technologies was going to keep the the earth in a sustainable uh in a habitable i should say you know carbon carbon uh carbon scenario and then kind of justify our assumptions and the thing that struck me really two things was one we need at least a little bit of everything right this is not mm-hmm. the kind of problem where you do one thing and it's it's kind of a silver bullet I'm and sure. number two yeah. by far the biggest lever that we had Was energy efficiency, or another name for that, is energy productivity. So, in other words, Mm -hmm. the less energy we need to produce, that's much higher leverage than actually producing more and more energy, right? Mm. So, that was a big kind of of revelation. But that was a big, big influence on me and saying, "There's this amazing thing called energy efficiency. How do I actually, you know, scale that up?"
0: Yeah, you you got me reflecting on what made me so passionate about it. But I realized, and this is going to lead to a question, is when I started learning about, I'm like, yes, what is wind energy? What is solar energy? What is geothermal? And then it was presented to me in such a conceptual way that I just was like, "Oh, that's interesting. That sounds super complicated." Yeah, <laughs> I don't know that. I can't get involved. What well, got you to lean harder into that versus I'd say, you know, ninety nine percent of us, we go, "That's too complicated. I'm going to go do something else."
2: That's a great question. I think for me, I can really only focus one thing at a time. And so I kind of tried to prioritize and say, you know, look, like I said, we got to do a lot of things, and there's a there's a ton of amazing people, amazing companies, amazing organizations working in renewable energy and carbon capture and sequestration, and you know everything that everything you can imagine. But I didn't see as many people really trying to address upfront and really tackle with the kind of unique issues and unique challenges that exist in energy efficiency. Not to say there, you know, there've been people. Many great people over the years that have done a lot of great work in the field, but relative to some of them, other those areas, at least among my peers, I didn't see as much focus and understanding how mm-hmm. big of a priority it is to address mm-hmm. our climate challenge. That's really kind of what what attracted me.
0: So motivated you, you're like, this is a really hard thing to figure out. People aren't focusing on it, but I definitely think we should be. So that kind of made you double down on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I, you know, <laughs> kind of became that weird energy efficiency person. So you know,
1: all in. Might, yeah, <laughs> you just exactly. went down the rabbit hole.
0: How have your thoughts changed on? We could we talk about energy efficiency, but just maybe climate in general over time. You know, I think we're we're all at this point, thirty years and older. A lot's happened in the past thirty years, right?
2: Yeah, I think a few things that I appreciate a little bit more than when I was than I was younger. One is, in some ways, the simplicity of the problem we need to solve when it comes to climate change. It is very complicated. There's a lot of things we need to do, but when you really break it down, there's essentially three things we need to do in, in almost every sector to essentially have a sustainable planet. So the first thing is efficiency, right? Reducing or eliminating energy waste, not using energy that we that we don't need to use or using it more more productively. Two is electrification, right? So we can't what we like to say is burn dead dinosaurs in your home, in your car, in power plants, etc. And then third is Zero emissions energy. So renewables, nuclear power, carbon capture and sequestration, if that's if that's technologically viable, but basically producing power without without carbon emissions. And that's easier said than done, obviously. And there's a lot of great work going into that, but that's that's kind of the conceptual framework that I think is, you know, is really, really easy for most people to understand. Kind of going the other way, I think the thing that I've appreciated, and specifically around efficiency, that's a little bit more challenging than you might think up front is the Heterogeneity of the problem, right? And especially when you're talking about things like building shells or installing or upgrading things like duct work, right? The more you have. A lot of different variation in what you're trying to put into a home or a building or anything like that, right? That creates that creates unique challenges and how you bring that to market and how you think about the value proposition and how you really how you really build you know build build scale. And so that's that's kind of you know a lot of uh, a, a lot of my thinking, especially in the last couple of years, has been around okay, what are the levers that we have? you know, to really address that, that problem, not just from a technology perspective. I'm not a, not a hardware person. I'm not that handy, but really from a kind of business model and, and scaling perspective.
1: Love it. you've said a couple of things you've talked about not being that handy. And then you also talked about focusing in on one thing, but the one thing it seems like you guys have now decided to focus on, which is people's homes are complex. So how did you get to sealed? I know you've had a history in this space. How did you get to Sealed? How was Sealed started? And then we'll go on. Like, How are you attacking this complex system that is a house?
2: Yeah, great question. So I started out actually, my energy efficiency journey, if you will, started out actually in the commercial sector. Um, So I was working a boutique uh, management consulting firm called Green Order, which was Doing a lot of really great work. One of the for kind of first wave of kind of the green economy in the mid 2000s. So we were advising big companies like GE around how they can think about developing you know kind of profitable sustainability strategies. You know I was an analyst and my focus was uh, primarily on commercial real estate. So I was working with big companies like GE Real Estate to try to help them understand kind of what they can do to understand their their carbon footprint, understand how to how to improve that, and how that really fits into their corporate strategies. and so as part of that i came across you know what i thought were some really cool business models that are called a few different things are called escos or performance financing but the basic idea is um you know similar to what seal is doing now you put up the capital to install improvements that are going to reduce um, energy waste and then the person putting up the capital is paid back based on the energy uh savings over over time right so you're essentially okay. kind of turning something that today is an operating cost right your your energy uh-huh. bill or yeah, yeah. or your or other operating costs and you're basically essentially like capitalizing that in 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 some ways by basically putting up the 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 money up front to be able to reduce those reduce those costs and reduce those resources so I thought that was really interesting definitely saw a lot of challenges in the commercial space that uh I was probably not patient enough to want to stick around and solve related to um, principal agent issues you know we've got a uh, it's a very complicated transaction structure in the commercial real estate mm-hmm. business you've got you know a, a building owner you've got usually a property manager you've got a uh, mortgage holders you've got tenants you've got mm-hmm. you know and then not that's not that's not to even talk about all of the governmental stakeholders you know regarding sure. permitting and 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 zoning. So from there I I got lured into um the startup space. A friend of mine from college was starting a company in the in kind of the consumer space and this was kind of the time where you know kind of the first wave of social networking was taking off and people were becoming more for better or worse people were becoming more aware of their carbon footprints so we kind of created this like amazing carbon calculator on steroids essentially uh, um, that yeah, we originally yeah. called climate culture and then we, we we eventually pivoted and changed the name to to efficiency 2.0 but the idea was if you give people the right information and, and make it really personalized and actionable um, and specific that you can get people to kind of make the make the right decisions and what they do. so we mm. built a business around that Selling white label software to utilities to help them engage their their customers to save energy yep. and help and yep. and help meet their their energy efficiency um, mandates. From that, I really saw kind of consumer behavior, understanding kind of what you could do with large data sets in this space, understanding kind of the utility and regulatory landscape. Um, and so, with those two experiences, kind of came the the general idea for for Sealed in wanting to put those together. And and I kind of. Had the instinct that actually this ESCO model, this performance financing model, would scale better with the residential homeowners than it would with commercial, or at least faster because there was just a simplicity to the to the transaction. Now there's lots of other complications, which you know happy to happy to talk about. But that was kind of the the idea of of getting that getting that going.
1: That's super interesting. So you really started, and I was looking at your site at sealed You really started looking at it from is it right to say this kind of the financing, this capitalization of your bills, uh, which I didn't understand. Talk, talk us through that a little bit. Like it looks like you end up becoming the person a homeowner would pay instead of their utilities. Is that right?
2: So it's funny we we started that way, yeah. and I actually think that that's that's a you know a great approach. But what we found was the biggest kind of feature or kind of the killer app in this space is really is really trust and accountability. So right. we, when we started out, we actually didn't have financing. We didn't have any money, right? So we did, yeah, yeah. what we called a guaranteed savings product. So the reason we actually did what we call combined billing was we needed to basically demonstrate to the customer that we were giving them a lower bill in exchange for the work that they had done. So we kind of had a yeah, synthetic yeah. bill. They're doing that. Once we were able to, you know, kind of develop the company to the point where we could get some some project financing and and, and capitalize those improvements, um, we found that that was um, a little bit less important relative to being able to really demonstrate to the customer that we that we were in this together, right? And I think the thing that we we've learned, right, is that there's basically three big components um, that it takes to get homeowners to adopt these kinds of you know deep energy retrofit measures things like insulation air sealing heat pumps etc and that's number 1 capital right you've got to have the money these 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 right. improvements are right. not are not yeah. cheap for the most part uh, so just having the capital to be able to to put up to be able to do that Number two, making the process as easy as possible, and I think that's something that I've appreciated more and more as we've built the as as we've built the business. Is there's a lot of friction, there's a lot of transaction uh, soft costs in in getting these projects done, and and, and really lowering those barriers to entry is important. And then finally, you know, this goes to, you know, kind of the idea for Sealed is really um, trust and accountability. And what we found was most of these improvements are done in, you know, the nooks and crannies of your home. Or are with technology that maybe is a little bit newer that you're less that homeowners are less familiar with, and so there's a huge trust gap there that is really hard to fill. We did some some research last year, for example, and we found the number one consideration in in someone doing a heat pump project, for example, is price. As you would imagine, the number two consideration is a performance guarantee of some kind, right? Like people really really want yeah. to understand kind of like what they're what they're going to get.
1: I mean it's got to be the number one question you get which is how much will I save? How do I know you know what I'm going to save? So kind of walk us through just a brief example of I've got an older home, you know, maybe it's 60 100 years old. So, you know, I'm in Seattle. We have a lot of 100-year-old homes here. I know this thing leaks like a sieve, right? Like I can feel the drafts. Yeah. I can see my utility bill going up. How does sealed come in and help? me?
2: one thing um that actually we've found which is which is a little bit um unintuitive at first glance and a little bit different than 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 the way you framed it before is actually the thing that people care about the most is not how much energy or money they're going to save on their utility bill. It's how comfortable they're going to be in their home, how healthier they're going to be, how safer. So when we say performance, yeah. yeah. So when we say performance, certainly the energy reductions are an important indicator of that performance, but ultimately what people want is a more comfortable home, right? They don't want to have, they want to live in a home that doesn't have drafts in the, in the winter, doesn't feel like a sauna in the summer and is healthy, you know, breathe healthy air. They're not worried about things exploding in their home all that stuff. So that's that's the way we kind of think about it. So what SEAL does is we try and again, make it easy, affordable, and accountable for you to, to, to get those, these improvements. So we do everything remotely, digitally, and then we basically give our, our customers a customized scope of work of what they can do to improve their home and a customized, obviously, performance financing package for customers that are interested in moving forward. We then connect them with one or more local contractors. So we work with kind of the best of the best local contractors that will go to your home, kind of confirm the project, make sure that that that, that everything is copacetic and then install the project. And then we pay the contractors upfront once we kind of confirm the quality of the installation. And then our customers, the homeowners pay us back over time based on the energy reductions that they actually realize. So we, we actually look at their past energy usage both before the project, and then we look at their energy usage after the project, um, adjusted for weather. They're only paying us based on any delta. So if we invest in a project and a customer is not saving energy, they're using more energy than they did before, um, then we're not paid a dime. So we have a real incentive, a real interest in making sure that that work is done well.
1: And that's what you mean. You said that a minute ago, and I don't mean to like dig into this, but sometimes I can be oversimplified, but you said performance financing. And so you're helping to pay for this project or get this project going with the concept that like, I'm going to save energy and I'm only going to pay if I actually do. And so mm-hmm. when I pay, when I save energy, when I look at my energy bills and they go down, I'm not necessarily paying you through those energy bills, but I am paying you that I, like now, oh, I saved energy. So now I give you, is it financing? I'm paying back that mm-hmm. project, right? I got to pay yeah. back what you guys put up front, but it's based off of my savings.
2: Yep, exactly. It's performance financing. Yep.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah, super cool. So it's all based on this idea of efficiency. And I love this, you've said it through kind of your whole journey. But help us understand what is what do you mean by home efficiency, energy efficiency? How are you tracking that? Like, I, I just feel like my house, like I said, leaks like a sieve on everything, air comes out, heat comes in, like all the where how are you guys tracking efficiency? And I want to think of this in two layers. Obviously, for your customer, at, you know, at the homeowner, but you've got this kind of general mission here of energy efficiency. You believe this is a necessary thing we have to accomplish to affect climate change. How do you think of that? How are you measuring it? How do we understand that from your perspective?
2: Yeah, so our our mission as a company is to stop home energy waste and electrify all the homes, right? So that's kind right. of our north star when we're when we're out in the market. And there's a lot of proxies for. Measuring, you know, efficiency or measuring energy waste. We're a little bit, I guess, I don't know, call it old school, but we just do it by looking at how much energy you used before the project and how much energy you use after be- the project, right? Now, yeah. there's a little more complicated than that. You've got to weather normalize. We do. We have yeah. some fancy data and analytics in the background that help us to underwrite and make the right bets on, on how much energy you know, any given home is going is to save when we put in certain improvements. Um, but that's it, right? There's a lot of history. And one of the big challenges in the energy efficiency space is that it's um, historically... Been considered difficult to measure, right? So, what I always like to say is that energy efficiency, to me, is kind of like the dark matter of of energy resourcing, right? It's the <laughs> yeah. by far most abundant, by far most impactful energy resource that we have. The International Energy Agency estimates that almost half of our climate challenge can be met through energy efficiency with today's technology alone. Wow. But it's 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 very. Difficult to measure because it's the lack yeah. of something, right? How do you know right. that something otherwise wouldn't have happened? It's this, it's this kind of attribution problem, and so that's where data comes in, right? And yeah. that's where you know analytics, and that's where transparency comes in with with the homeowner.
1: So I got to ask this just this follow up question then: when you think of this at a macro level, what Sealed is trying to do? Do you guys have this like I don't know, maybe just a much met- simpler metric of? How many homes we have to make X percent efficient or something like that? Is there a guesstimate on like impact overarching? Like if we looked at America and you said, I could be in all 50 states and I can get to 10% of all the homes and I can make them all 10% more efficient. Where are you guys at on something like that as a metric?
2: I mean, we obviously have a key metrics around how many homes we're serving and what the kind of both total energy and, and carbon impacts of that are, but we also try and think about it in a little more systematic way. I was really inspired a few years ago um, listening to um, the other goat of this of this uh, of this industry, uh, Jigar Shah, give a nice. give a give a talk or give a I think it was actually a podcast recording nice. um, that I went to, and he made the really good point that from where we are to where we need to get to is 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 huge, right? We are we are not right now on the trajectory that we need to be. And he made a great analogy to World War II, right? And kind of the, the years leading up to World War II, which was essentially that we did a lot of things in leading up to World War II that gave us the capabilities, gave us the infrastructure to be able to scale to the levels that we scaled at in kind of winning in kind of winning World War II. So the way that I really think about kind of where we are right now versus where we where we need to go is essentially are we doing the things right now that are going to allow us to scale when we hit those inflection points and there's a lot of ways right. to there's a lot of potential drivers of those inflection points and you know happy to happy to talk about them but i really think about are we building the machine so for example You know, when we we've been working since we got our initial project finance facility with the New York Green Bank. Right. And so when we first got that facility, we were, I think, almost by far the smallest check that they wrote. Right. Like we were almost too small for them to to even even care about it. Right. We chugged along and figured out a bunch of things and started growing and started growing. And we're now at this point, one of the largest projects nice. in their in their portfolio. Right. So you're starting to see again that scalability and that and that ability yeah. to to really build that up. Right. And that's that's also where I think great folks like um we also, you know, in our early days were helped by things like the Urban Future Lab in, in, in New York City mm-hmm. and others, right? There's this ecosystem where you have to kind of start small and get the machine right, so to speak, right? In order to start building up that that scale over time.
0: Yeah. Great. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty crazy that, you know, population growth and the amount of homes, I just looked really quickly, there's about 140, 150 million homes in the US, that energy has kept up with that scale. And like, people have energy, right? Like consistently, it's not like, <laughs> right. hey, you'll have energy in three months, you know, it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's, that's pretty incredible what the government has been involved in the infrastructure, I mm-hmm. guess speaking of government you've had a lot of experience working with regulators state or national how are you thinking about this now especially with sealed is that something that you do work with them hand in hand or is is that is, are you approaching that differently
2: well i think policy in general i don't i don't think anybody who is in this space is being honest if they if they don't tell you that policy in energy in general and, and in clean energy in particular is an important factor yeah that said Prior to August two thousand, what two thousand twenty-one, when the IRA passed, it wasn't a huge focus for for sealed. I'm I'm a little bit of a political and policy nerd, so I'll, I'll always kind of keep my keep my pulse on the my policy nerdery, but for the most part, right, we're a direct-to-consumer business. This is not something that is a huge driver outside of certain states. If anything, policy sometimes can mean that we don't go to a to a certain market, um, rather than it being something yeah. that that attracts us or, or doesn't. I think that that's changing now on a variety of fronts, not just with the IRA, but I think with a number of other things that are happening in the market. And so I think it's a really interesting time because I think. Market actors like Sealed and many others are interacting with policy stakeholders in a much more kind of uh, much more meaningful way than has necessarily happened in the past. At least in the efficiency space, right? There's obviously been a lot of great policy work and policy drivers around, you know, rooftop solar and other and other markets. Mm, but I yeah, think yeah. this is not the first time, but this is a big, big, big moment for for efficiency when it comes to uh, when it comes to policy engagement.
0: Very cool. Right. So you mentioned the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, inflationary Reduction Act. Some people also call it the climate bill. So, how has the climate bill affected Sealed's? You know, just kind of basic suit to nuts like operations, cost, supply
2: chain, pricing. Has it made things easier? Uh, great question. I mean, the truth of the matter is, most of it hasn't actually hit the market yet. So, okay. there's basically three big programs that that impact the residential efficiency and electrification market you know what, what what impacts a company like sealed So the first is 25c tax credits and so these are tax credits for homeowners that install things like weatherization and heat pumps and those are active today. those need to be processed by the homeowner themselves so we can tell our customers about them and we're excited to, to do so um, but it's not a kind of a direct operational impact on our business. The much bigger impact on our business is through two programs, in particular, one of them, first of which is called the the HERO program. Uh, It's a high efficiency electric rebate uh, program. And it's really aimed at low to moderate income households to um, help enable them to afford not just things like heat pumps, but there's a lot of investment that goes into electrification in the home. So upgrading your electric panels, putting in electric vehicle chargers, uh, things like that, right? And that's about a bucket of about $4 billion. And then there's another uh, bucket of about $4 billion for what's called the HOMES program that we're very excited about. And that program is really focused on providing incentives based on the scale of energy reductions that are either estimated or realized uh, for a particular home. And the thing that is unique about both of those last two programs that I mentioned is while the money is coming from the federal government, ultimately it's going to be administered by the states. So, Department of Energy right now is working really hard to develop guidelines for the states to be able to apply for that money. And so, you might see a lot of you know states um, decide to uh, uh, to implement those dollars in, in in different ways or in different timeframes. Um, and so, that's where a lot of the you know kind of devil in the details uh, kind of comes yeah, out with 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 policymaking and with the homes program in particular there the states have an option to do one or both of two different ways to deploy the funds so the first one is called the modeled pathway so this is this is pretty similar to a lot of energy efficiency programs in the past where um, contractors or other market actors basically create a physics model of a a home calibrated with past energy bills, and then estimate how much energy is going to be saved. And then you get a rebate based on the amount of estimated savings, but there's no real accountability for those savings actually existing. So you could estimate you're going to save- 30% 30% on your energy use. And if that doesn't happen, right, the only one who's really kind of left holding the bag is the homeowner themselves, as yeah. well as the taxpayer, right? right. So there's, there's yeah. a, um, yep. And then the other pathway, which we're obviously very excited about, uh, given our business model, is the measured savings pathway. And so this enables the states uh, to give out these incentive dollars um, only based on actual realized energy reductions as nice. calculated kind of pre and post project. And we think that that's really important for kind of getting energy efficiency to graduate from where it's been since the early Amory Levin's days, right? In the seventies in <laughs> from this, yeah. you know, essentially what I would call noble, but limited compliance exercise by the States and sometimes cities to one that is a true clean energy resource. One that, right. that, that utilities, that private capital can invest in the same way they invest in solar and wind and, and all other resources. So there's a lot becoming
0: available for Consumers and from just their house. There's you mentioned you mentioned a bunch of things. So you mentioned uh, the uh, upgrade your electric panel, install EV charger. We've talked weatherization insulation Like it could be it could be hard to keep track of all these things, which is probably part of the big opportunity extendability of what Sealed is doing. So do you feel like the climate bill is changing consumer behavior or preferences, or do you feel like it's too early to tell and it might just be at the moment like it's coming, consumers <laughs> and Sealed. Yeah. yeah.
2: I think it's both too early to tell and it's a story still being written. So okay. what I mean yeah. by that is a lot of the, the bill itself created a lot of very interesting and exciting and obviously, you know, impactful potential for really changing the market. Yeah. Right. So changing the trajectory of what we're doing today versus what we're going to do in the future. But there's a natural gravity, right, to change, right? We're we're talking yeah. in, on the Climate Mayhem podcast, right? And uh, you know what? Uh, another word for mayhem is is chaos, right? And so you yeah. yeah. talked to I was at a conference last week, and someone basically said, you know, we don't want this, you know, crazy measured savings pathway that's going to be chaos, right? So that's kind of chaos yeah. to one to one people. But another word for mayhem, right, is disruption and is change, right? And so I think what you're seeing is there's a lot of kind of behind the scenes debate and discussions right now that are happening around this, you know, to go back to the old uh, Bill Clinton uh, campaign line, right? Change versus more of the same, right? And so the real decision we as a society and and obviously individual policymakers need to make, but but really all of us um, need to make is, do we want to keep Doing more of the same things, um, and if we do that, we're going to remain on the same trajectory that we've been on for the last fifty years. Or do we want to do the hard things and, and acknowledge that they're hard, and acknowledge that yep. they're that they're unknown, yep. and try and change the bend the curve and change our trajectory? Obviously, I'm pretty clear where, where, I stand, uh, where I stand on that. But I think that's really the, the question. And I think that if we keep to kind of doing more of the same, I don't have a lot of confidence that the IRA is really going to make the kind of impact that it could have or that we need it to have. Um, but I think that it has the potential there if, if the actual policy implementation is, is done in the right way.
0: Whoa, what a blast. What'd you think so far? Are you hungry for more? Go check out part two of this conversation.
1: But before you go, could you do us a huge favor and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it right now? It'd mean the world to us.
0: Oh, and if you're feeling a little frisky and you want to give us some feedback, go to climatemayhem.com where you'll find our contact link. See you soon.